All right, here's what's on the Jeff MacArthur podcast for Monday, August 31st. Ontario researchers make strides in predicting the severity of coronavirus in patients. A Canadian Mental Health Association survey says that a majority of us fear a second wave of COVID. And Sam Hammond, president of EDFO, talks about Ontario's four major teachers unions filing a labor board complaint over the school reopening plan. All of that coming up right now. As we all brace ourselves for back to school during a pandemic, a team from Western University reporting some groundbreaking discoveries that they hope will lead to better outcomes for those who are seriously ill from COVID-19. Dr. Douglas Fraser is the lead researcher on this and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Dr. Fraser, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. My pleasure. Pleasure to have you here, sir. Uh, Tell us, what have you found when it comes to identifying the severity of illness for those with COVID? Right. So we uh, recently published a study that uh, we looked at uh, patients with COVID-19 in the critical care unit. So those that are very, very sick. And we took blood from those patients at various time points. And we found after measuring 1,161 proteins in their blood, that six proteins, which previously had never been uh, looked at before, accurately predicted how sick someone was going to get with standard ICU care. And why is that important? Well, it's important for three reasons. Uh, The first reason is if, if we know right off the bat when someone's starting to become ill, when they're first admitted to the intensive care unit, if we know how sick they're going to be, then we can start to mobilize resources early and we can implement some interventions a lot earlier than we normally would. And we hope that would make a difference. The second reason is we can have very frank and transparent talks with substitute decision makers, with family members, with, and perhaps with the patients themselves if they're coherent, and really find out what are their wishes, how aggressive do they want us to be. And the third reason is there are going to be a lot of clinical trials coming up very shortly looking at interventions for COVID-19. And when we do those, those clinical trials, we usually start off with low numbers for a whole bunch of practical reasons. But if we know some patients are going to do poorly right from the beginning, we want to know that so that we can stratify patients into groups, who's going to do poorly, who's going to do better. And that will help us to understand how our treatments are working and which ones we should continue to pursue. This is really fascinating stuff. And will this save lives uh, perhaps uh, down the line if we know somebody is COVID positive in these protein markers, if they're showing that uh, they have the risk of uh, a really severe illness from uh, COVID, that that again, we can be super uh, aggressive or or get in there and and really uh, help them at an earlier stage? Absolutely. it's, It's a little too early to implement things right this moment, but uh, as soon as we do a little bit more research and we have an idea of what interventions are going to help uh, and that we can put on early, then yes, it'll make a huge difference. Do we know why some people react to COVID a little more severely than others from this uh, doctor? I mean, some people end up on a ventilator, sadly have died, obviously, from a COVID-19, and others show relatively few effects. Is that just a matter of age, that if you've got youth on your side, or is there more to it, do we know? Well, you are right. There's a wide variety or a big spectrum of disease severity that we see with COVID. And we know while there's some risk factors, like older age, uh, hypertension, 
uh, cardiac disease. We know these are risk factors for worse disease, but why some people are getting really ill versus other, we're not quite sure yet. We did publish a study a couple months ago, which was a landmark study, where we looked at uh, what's, what was being referred to as the cytokine storm. And cytokines are these small, uh, uh, small molecules that float around in the blood and that help coordinate your response to an infection. When we uh, looked at those in the COVID patients, COVID positive patients versus those in the ICU that were COVID negative, the COVID positive patients certainly had a very exaggerated response in certain cytokines, not only in the amount, but it was persistent. So we're starting to understand a little bit more how the immune systems are reacting to the disease, but we need to do more work there to help identify which patients are at greatest risk. Yeah, what stage is your research in right now, doctor? Is this something that still needs uh, to go through the uh, verification process? Well, I think that's that's always the case. You know, we, we in London, we we were fortunate that we didn't have too many sick cases, but we had enough that we could start the studies and get the preliminary data. Now that we have that data, it's been peer reviewed, it's been circulated around the world, and now it's time for other people in larger units to also take a look at it and verify our results. And that's an important step in in the scientific process because we want to be sure what we're doing, particularly when lives are in matter. I was going to ask you, what has the reaction been really from around the world? I'm sure this is making news and that other researchers are very interested in these findings. What are you hearing from others? Well, there's a number of ways we judge this. And, uh, for example, there are groups which follow research studies and, and what kind of interest those studies are generating. And uh, our first study on the cytokine storm uh, was ranked in the top 1% of studies. Uh, the, the outcome biomarker one you just mentioned, it's ranked in, in number three in, in the cohort that we're looking at in the world. And uh, we've got another study on why patients clot, why, why they're suffering from blood clots in their small uh, blood vessels, particularly in the lung. And we've just published that one as well. And it's also garnering a lot of international attention. And is there is it the hope that uh, maybe some of this research uh, might spark something with another researcher? Do we think that maybe this uh, might uh, lead us to or be help when it comes to finding an eventual vaccine for COVID? Well, our work isn't so much aimed towards vaccinations. That's a different way of doing the science around it. Ours is, is more directed at who's getting ill and what therapies we have once they get ill. There's no doubt we need a vaccine, a vaccine which will halt the disease, uh, but it's very, it, it would be highly unusual, at least in the early phases, for the disease to be stopped altogether, like influenza, for example. Influenza, we have vaccinations, but it still circulates the globe. So we also need effective treatments for people. And that's more where, we're, where, where we are focused. Yeah, just finally, Dr. Fraser, before I let you go, uh, wondering, what has the last few months been like for you and for your team? I mean, is this a, a challenge unlike any other, maybe an unexpected uh, challenge that uh, you were faced with or have uh, taken on? It's, uh, well, it's been a great challenge. In the early stage, stages, back in, uh, I believe it was mid-March when we had our first COVID-19 patient that was that was sick and wound up in the ICU. I mean, it was a it was a very anxiety-provoking time for everyone because we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how many patients we were going to see. We didn't know uh, too much about how it was being transmitted, how the healthcare workers were going to be affected, how our resources were going to be affected. So that was a very difficult time. However, we worked through that very well as a team. I think uh, 
right across Canada, the way the Canadian government has, has managed this, the way the provincial governments have managed it, uh, and more locally, I think everyone's done a great job given the number of unknowns that were being faced and that are still being faced. So I, I think we're doing better every day, uh, but we have to be prepared for a second wave that still may occur, and we have to be prepared to pull back if the numbers increase spontaneously or, or rapidly, and uh, and then a slow move forward. It's a, it's uncharted territory, but I, I think uh, we've all done a great job in Canada. Yeah, agree wholeheartedly, and you're absolutely right. It's that fear of the unknown, and as things become known, I think it uh, helps relieve people's fear and anxiety. And thank you and your team for uh, a lot of the great work you've been doing to help turn some of those unknowns into knowns, and really appreciate your time with us this afternoon. Thanks very much. There's Dr. Douglas Fraser. He is the uh, lead researcher on the, which is pretty groundbreaking research, as you just heard from Western University, figuring out uh, why some people react to COVID more seriously than others. Well, when it comes to a second wave of COVID, most of us are quite fearful. As a matter of fact, in a new survey, it's not even close. How about this? 84, 84% of Canadians fear the possibility of a second wave. Camille Quinville joins us now for more on this on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Camille, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Uh, 84%, obviously an overwhelming majority. Uh, were you even surprised by that number? So, yes, we were uh, surprised by that. We did uh, a poll in May, and we've done our second in a series of three in the last couple of weeks with the results um, just coming out now. What we learned in May is that 84% are uh, very anxious, uh, as they were in May, as you point out, about a second wave. And I think it's really reflective of the overall level of stress and anxiety people continue to feel about the pandemic. And the specific reasons why may be a little different now, and we might be a little more focused on the fact that schools are reopening very soon that people are returning to their workplaces, uh, their physical workplaces, um, in higher numbers in the coming weeks and months. Um, but it's it's alarming to us that that many people are concerned about mental health generally. Now, here's the irony, I think, uh, Camille, is the fact that uh, people are worried, overwhelmingly so, about a second wave. And a lot of that is because of the actions of uh, others and what they've seen uh, going on the last uh, few months. So most of us are worried about a second wave, but we see few people doing anything about it. Yeah, I think what's interesting is we, you know, those of us who wear masks, and I think that's the vast majority of the population, and we're uh, are respectful in terms of being socially distanced uh, where appropriate. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting reflection of, of their concern that while they may be following the rules, they're just concerned that others might not be and that we could find ourselves in a place where we're back into self-isolation. So um, that's a fear that uh, many people have, and we understand that. Um, but as I say, interestingly, it hasn't gone down in the last several months, despite the fact that, of course, the number of people who are diagnosed each day with the virus has decreased really dramatically. How concerned are you with uh, back to school now and we're expecting perhaps a bit of a, a spike in COVID cases in, in the numbers that that's going to have an adverse effect on uh, people's uh, mental health? 
Well, we're really concerned about that. And, um, you know, the numbers show that uh, 68% of parents are concerned, pardon me, 64% are concerned about their own anxiety as they send their kids back to school and what that means for their household. So we know that uh, in some cases the fear is reflected in the fact that um, the relationship with grandparents may change because there might be a reluctance to have uh, those children who are circulating with a large, larger number of people than they have in months, um, you know, there, there would be a concern about potentially bringing the virus into the home um, and infecting uh, a parent or grandparents. So uh, we've heard a fair bit about that. Um, but overall, again, what's concerning is the number of people who not only fear a second wave, but also fear the long-term impacts of of what this virus will mean um, over time, and sure. uh, and and clearly um, for us, it means ensuring we have the right resources. What can people do, Camille, to limit their fears and anxiety about all of that? Well, in many respects, what they could and should do all the time with respect to their mental health, if you're in a pandemic or not. So, a lot of self care and making sure that you are. Um, uh, reaching out and you're not isolating yourself. So maintaining your social circles, even though that's a little more challenging now, making sure you're getting the right amount of sleep, that you're eating well, that you're exercising, and all of those things contribute to positive mental health, and that hasn't changed through the pandemic. Yeah, and are there signs or symptoms we should be looking for, not only in ourselves, but uh, for others as well who might might need help? I think I think, you know, keeping a close eye on family members and friends is is always important. And I think if people are uh, distanced or their moods are changing or for whatever reason their behavior is is atypical, I think it's important to make sure that that, uh, you're having conversations with them about how they're doing. What's interesting about the pandemic is we're all in the same boat and we're all struggling. um, And for some people, it is a tremendous struggle. And it is something that they are are not coping with well at all. So just being mindful and checking in on people, including neighbors and and friends. Glad you mentioned that because I was just thinking about that early in the pandemic. We talked about that uh, quite a bit about the need to be checking on others and uh, how beneficial that is not only to them, but for you as well, because it really keeps everybody uh, connected. I think maybe that's gone by the wayside in the uh, last few months, but I think it's a point worth underscoring and making sure that you're doing, particularly if we do see a bit of a spike or, or a second wave and maybe, you know, some more distancing is is needed in the coming months. Oh, I couldn't agree more. We are all social creatures, and I think the um, the need to connect with people is is absolutely critical. And uh, I would just say we're actually doing some research right now on loneliness and the uh, impact of that on our our collective health and mental health in particular. And it's very real. And so I would just say you're quite right. Um, It's important for them and it's important for us. All right. Camille Quenville, the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Ontario Division. For Ontario Teachers Unions, representing close to 200,000 teachers, say that they plan to file suit against the Ontario government over the province's back-to-school reopening plan. That is breaking news here on this Monday afternoon. Sam Hammond is the head of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Sam, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, My pleasure, Jeff. 
All right, specifically, what is not being addressed as far as teachers are concerned? Well, we we felt it necessary to meet with the Minister of Labor to uh, request that the appropriate health and safety standards were in place in publicly funded schools. Uh, We suggested to the Minister that uh, the government was not taking every reasonable precaution uh, to protect workers as is required uh, under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. And specifically, we, we asked for uh, standards, province-wide standards around physical distancing, cohorting or class sizes, uh, ventilation, uh, and transportation. Now, uh, let's tackle a few of those. Distancing, is it not two meters, uh, six feet? Uh, that's kind of the, the accepted standard. Uh, is that good enough for teachers? Well, it, it, that would be wonderful uh, if the government was applying uh, across the board, as we've said to the Minister of Labour, uh, two metres of phys- physical distancing. Uh, what, in fact, happened is that the Sick Kids Hospital uh, recommended that one metre uh, distancing would be appropriate. Um, we're not sure why, but how we're seeing this unfold in, in classrooms across the province is that Many, many classrooms uh, don't even have a one-meter physical distancing between students based on how classrooms are set up, Uh, and that's that's extremely concerning. Uh, One member who contacted me just this morning went in to set up her room, and she has 35 centimeters uh, of distancing, and that's extremely problematic. All right, also problematic are ventilation systems, and we've been wondering aloud for some time now, Sam, uh, whether or not we've got enough time to actually go in, examine the HVAC and ventilation systems in all of the schools, and get the necessary work done before back to school. Uh, I would say to you, no, that that's not possible. Uh, Had the government started this, you know, come up with a plan three months ago, including uh, funding and direction around uh, ventilation in schools, boards may have been able to be prepared. But, um, you know, uh, when when school boards have 50, 100, 200 schools uh, that, that need upgrades to their ventilation system, it's just impossible, as many of them have said publicly, to get that done before school. And some are saying that it will take up to, up to uh, three to four months. All right. And finally, classroom size. When it comes to class size, uh, where are you in the government when it comes to numbers? Well, uh, we have, and, and uh, you know, some 240,000 people on a petition and all stakeholders have been calling for uh, class sizes to be reduced. Originally, we were talking about reducing them to, to 15 per class and a class of, you know, 30 kindergarten students splitting them up. Uh, we also talked about, based on the size of the room, with the uh, one meter of distancing, two would be preferred, but based on sick kids, one metering, uh, one meter distancing in classrooms, and whatever that number based on the square footage of the classroom comes out to be, then then fair enough. Uh, but that's not happening uh, across the province. And school boards, their hands are tied, quite frankly, with the funding that they have. Okay, Sam, uh, here's what the Premier, Doug Ford, has said about your union and others. Have a listen. Every single one, 99.9% of everyone's getting along, except there's one group. It's a teacher's union. Why? What's your response? Well, you know, let me just say for me, for our members in ETFO, this is not political. 
We tried everything we could to work with this government, uh, and they continuously make announcements that we find out about on social media. Uh, this is not political for us. It is focused on the health and safety uh, of students. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if we're getting in the way because of that, then so be it, because it's extremely, uh, extremely important. And I think, the, I think the Premier needs to listen to everyone uh, around him and the minister uh, all stakeholders and parents, and now medical experts who are saying that there are serious problems with um, some of the items that we've talked about. Okay, let me ask you about that, Sam, because I know the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, he has tweeted out that Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, the senior medical authority in the province, has endorsed the back-to-school plan. Do you not trust your union or others that trust his medical expertise? Well, you know, I'm, uh, I have uh, the greatest respect for the chief medical medical officer. Uh, I'm just not sure uh, the on-the-ground logistics uh, of how this is being implemented. Uh, if the chief medical officer is approving one meter of, dis- of physical distancing, then the ministry and the government needs to ensure uh, that that, in fact, is happening uh, in uh, in classrooms. Sick Kids Hospital in their report that the Premier and the Minister pointed to time and time again uh, includes that there should be smaller class sizes, and uh, for the most part, that's not happening. Who should have the final say when it comes to back to school on the plan? Should it be teachers or should it be medical officials? Well, I think we should be working in, con- uh, in conjunction, and that's part of the problem is uh, most of the uh, advice has been based on medical uh, experts' opinions, and that's great. Uh, but there's another part of the plan that is the on-the-ground logistics practical part of it, the pedagogy part included, um, that education stakeholders should have been much more involved in. Right, but again, somebody has got to uh, eventually have a final say on this. Should it be uh, the government, the education minister? Should it be the chief officer of health? Should it be the teachers' unions? No, I, I, you know, I think I think the, the you know the final overall responsibility here lies with the Minister of Education and the Premier in Ontario. But when we're talking about uh, on the ground implementation of those plans, then uh, as the the, the uh, Education Minister has said, school boards should be working in conjunction with their local health units to ensure that what's happening. But I'll give you an example. A, a local health unit recommended to a school board in Ontario two meters of physical distancing, and the board couldn't implement that because of the one-meter suggestion. All right, finally, Sam, if things don't change, do you expect your membership to report uh, to back to school? Is job action, is it a possibility? Is that being discussed? Well, yeah, our, our members uh, are, you know, as concerned as they are, our members, as they always have, since they have, uh, you know, since March, for example, will step up again uh, and be in classrooms and do the absolute best they can with, with the plan that, that's in place, and we'll do everything we can to protect them and students. So t- uh, teachers will be on the job uh, when back to school commences in a couple of weeks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, We'll see what happens at the Labour Board in terms of a ruling there. Uh, But I will just say that, you know, watching everything as it's unfolding, I think it would be wise for the Premier and the Minister of Education to consider uh, even a short delay in the opening to to get some of the things that need to be worked out, uh, dealt with. All right. Sam, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Here goes Sam Hammond, President of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. 
And that's our podcast for this Monday. Don't forget, you can join me live weekday afternoons from 1 to 3 on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.